Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Library, and if you are new here, welcome! This is where I am reading through the enormous library of books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. It is the last Sunday of the month, meaning it's time for another president, making this month's president our 23rd president, Benjamin Harrison. And the book of the week is called Benjamin Harrison by Charles W. Calhoun. The accompanying cocktail is called the Human Iceberg, which was one of Harrison's nicknames. It is two lime wedges, salt for the glass, two and a half ounces of sweet and sour cocktail mix, two ounces of Corona beer, one and a half ounces of gold tequila, one ounce of Cointreau, and one ounce of simple syrup, and three quarter ounce of fresh lime juice. There's a lot going into this one, so let's do this. I already did one lime wedge and salt rim on the glass, and then I have my cocktail. My cocktail rocks in there so that I am ready to go with a nice cool one and not having ice in there. That's the cocktail. On to the story. So Benjamin Harrison was born on August 20th, 1833 in uh, North Bend, Ohio, and he is the grandson of our ninth president, William Henry Harrison. His political dynasties were not actually a thing back then. I mean, we had, yes, we had John Adams and then John Quincy Adams, but really that was more the exception rather than the rule. Uh, Benjamin Harrison was raised knowing that his grandfather had been president and the circumstances of his grandfather's death, but did not grow up a pampered political prince. Now, he was a very smart kid, and at the age of 14, his father sent him to Farmer's College to kind of start prepping for the world because he was a smart kid. Um, 14 seems young, but that was kind of prep high school and college all in one go. And Farmer's College was pretty prestigious. It, it was known for spitting out Congress critters pretty consistently, and, and other politicians, you know, governors, state senators, etc. So while he wasn't of a political dynasty, his family clearly had hopes for him. Two ounces of Corona. I'm a little leery of this one because this is a shaken one, and we all know that um, carbonated beverages don't shake well. But I'm hoping the carbonation will be overtaken by everything that's not carbonated. This is going to take some time. This is going to take some time because of the carbonation. So, while at Farmer's College, Harrison met his future wife, Caroline Lavinia Scott, who was the daughter of the Presbyterian minister, John W. Scott. And shortly after they met, Minister Scott moved his family and the girls' school that he operated 20 miles away to Oxford, Ohio. However, Harrison was not to be deterred by a little thing like distance, so he disenrolled from Farmers College and switched his uh, attendance to Miami University, also in Oxford, Ohio, so that he could be close to Caroline. Um, they, they were genuinely in love, and that, that sort of becomes relevant later in life. We'll get to that. Um, he graduated from Miami University in 1852 and continued to pursue Carrie until the, until the minister Scott or Reverend Scott consented to marry them on October 30th, 1853. In 1854, that was a red letter year for Harrison. He was admitted to the bar, relocated his small but growing family to Indianapolis. The author very delicately says that um, Caroline got pregnant immediately after they were married. But their first child was born on April 12, 1854, and that is only five months after their marriage. Uh, now, in the 19th century, which already had a very high infant mortality rate, babies born four months premature did not tend to survive to adulthood, yet Russell Harrison survived just fine. So I got a feeling Benjamin slipped one past the goalie known as Reverend Scott. I'm not saying that's how he got Lavinia's hand in marriage, or Lavinia, Caroline's hand in marriage. I'm just saying that he seemed to have that ability. Just, just saying. 
Um, believe it or not, that actually was not that uncommon. I know everybody likes to make a big to-do over the Victorians, but they were just as horny as we are in the 21st century. Having graduated and been accepted to the bar by age 19, married with a new baby, Harrison jumped into politics. The Whig Party, which had been the party of his grandfather, was essentially defunct at this point in history. So Harrison joined the newly formed Republican Party, stumping and voting for the first presidential candidate on the Republican ticket, who was John C. Fremont, in 1856, and then again for Lincoln in 1860. Uh, Harrison did join the uh, Union Army during the Civil War, served honorably. He achieved the ranks of Colonel and Brevet Brigadier General in short order, uh, fought in several uh, battles and, and did very well for himself overall. He was highly regarded by his men. Um, while serving in the army, Harrison, well, prior to and while serving, he was elected to the post of recorder for the Supreme Court in Indiana, which brought a pretty nice salary with it. I don't remember the exact amount, but it was decent money for the day, uh, which he was not really able to do while he was serving. So he kind of delegated that out to a, a like a sub-clerk, which was allowed, that was legal. Uh, and when he got out of the war, he was able to go back and continue being clerk in Indianapolis or wherever the state capital was. Harrison kind of played the local politic game, but he wasn't really in politics, but he was a member of the Republican Party. And he ended up being one of the delegates to the Republican convention that broke the deadlock that got Garfield the election in 1880 or the Republican nomination and then the election in 1880. After that, after he got Garfield that nomination, his political capital skyrocketed. And he kind of became the, the head of the Republican Party in Indiana, and not without political enemies. There were definitely other players in Indiana that were like, nah, I want to be the party leader. But of course, on the face of it, everybody was all united, and Harrison was the guy in charge, unofficially. That was it. Now, this did not stop him from winning the Republican no nomination. His enemies, excuse me, his enemies in the local party and in national party did not stop him from winning the Republican nomination in 1888. And he won, obviously, or we wouldn't be talking about him right now. Uh, when He won on the promise to help the working man, which his idea of helping the working man was to raise tariffs, which, which weirdly did not help the working man because the price of everything went up. Too bad he didn't bother to educate himself just like Cleveland did. Might have had a different story. Okay. Three quarter ounces of lime. This is going to suck. He then took the budget surplus that Cleveland had left it, left him, and spent it down to zero. Literally. He did this largely by increasing the pensions for the veterans of the Civil War. Which, look, I... I have nothing but mad respect for our military men, right? I, I, that's a hard job to do, and we need our military. I, I can fully acknowledge that. But where <clears throat> Cleveland had cut the budget to uh, fight graft and corruption, so Cleveland cut the budget to fight corruption and graft, and um, Harrison, not so much. He was just interested in winning that political pow power point uh, saying, oh, well, I, you know, unlike that guy, Her uh, Cleveland, unlike that Democrat Cleveland, the Republicans totally support our troops. And here's our proof. Look at what I did for the for, for the pensions and Union Army. And he, he literally just opened that up to anybody who, who served in the Army during the Civil War. He also signed into law the Veterans Family Benefits Program, which 
was that any wife or child of a Union soldier who served during the Civil War was also entitled to pension benefits. And if you think that didn't have long-lasting implications, uh, the last beneficiary of this program received benefits until her death on October 16th, 20, or December 16th, 2020. So, yeah, 140 years after he signed that law into effect, the last beneficiary finally died out. Um, that came about. She was the teenage bride of a 90-year-old uh, Civil War veteran. He, he, it wasn't as creepy as it sounds like. That sounds awful, right? But and there's a news article on it. Uh, essentially, she was his, uh, they were friends, and she was kind of his nurse caretaker, but he couldn't afford to pay her. This was during the Depression. Since he couldn't really afford to pay her, he said, hey, how about, since I can't pay you, we get married, and then you'll be eligible for this benefit that I get being a veteran of the Civil War. Oh, I do have other lemon limes. There they are. And so they did, and she did, and she collected on that until she died. So that was a very long-lasting program. Thank you very much, Benjamin Harrison. So he raised tariffs, spent the surplus, signed into law the Sherman Silver Purchase Act, which required the U.S. government to purchase 4.5 million ounces of silver per month. Uh, and then, because politicians are corrupt from the word go, those same politicians included language in the bill that allowed the Treasury Secretary, but only the Treasury Secretary, to redeem silver certificates for gold rather than silver. This keeps silver high in the economy in general while routing gold to the Federal Reserve, or the Federal Government. We didn't, we didn't have a reserve then. And if that doesn't strike you as hinky as then you might be a statist. Because, yeah, that's just... Allowing the government to do something that we the people can't is hinky, 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 and there is nothing good about it. I don't think I'm going to get three quarters of an ounce because I'm tired of squeezing limes. Yikes. Well, we'll finish this lime and then I'm going to call it good. I'll just say that's close enough to three quarters of an ounce. So far, in general, I am not loving Harrison, right? I mean, the government grew tremendously under his watch, and he was deeply involved in guiding Congress as to what he wanted passed and by who. The silver question being a big one, I mean, he flat out said, I'm only going to pass a silver bill, silver bill if it is sponsored by a Republican. Because he wanted the Republicans to get the credit for that with the silver lobby, which was huge at this time because, you know, he had the Comstock load in Nevada and everything else, but... Yeah, that's just hinky gross. I'm calling that good. This is shaken, so give me a minute. So apparently the carbonation was not cut down. Shaking my ass, you dipshits. Well, that was messy as hell. Oh, it's good. Because I have alcohol over my desk. And I gotta clean my office today. Never shaking a carbonated cocktail again. I don't care what the idiots say. Well, so far my computer's still working, so that's good. Oh, God. Cocktail everywhere. Lime in. Okie dokie. So, where was I? Um, now this is not to say he would never work with the Democrats. He would, but only after the midterm election saw a massive turnover. Massive. We're going to go to that in just a minute. Uh, he was alarmingly honest and forthright, though. Uh, this is one of his um, better qualities, I guess, is that he was very honest. 
uh, one of the good policies that he wanted to enact, and I don't, he obviously never quite went where he wanted it to go, was to reform federal election laws to ensure that the rather large black population in the South actually got to vote. Now, nominally, the 15th Amendment passed in the 1860s and maybe it's the early 1870s, but it, it enfranchised the former slave population nationwide. So in practice, though, the South had many creative ways to ensure that the largely Republican black voting base was heavily suppressed and effectively silenced in the South. It's not bad. Ooh, very sweet, very sticky, all over my desk now, but not bad. So when he starts pushing for federal election reform laws, the Democrats in Congress start complaining about how this is a force bill, this is a force bill, you're going to force the federal government down our throat to enforce these laws that we're not, we don't agree with on a state level. And Harrison said, quote, every law, whether natural, national or state, has force behind it. The courts, the marshal or constable, the posse comitatus, the prison are all and always behind the law. Well, I mean, shit, that's at least honest. I mean, he said out loud what every politician since has tried to deny. So uh, I think I'm going to put that into a meme and make it my thing every April. Just remember that quote next time you're filing your taxes. Every law, whether national or state, has force behind it. I was very honest of him. Harrison also believed that it was the government's job to stop big business and so was happy to sign into law the Sherman Antitrust Act, which outlawed every contract, combination, trust, or conspiracy in restraint of trade or commerce, imposing fines and jail time for each violation. Now, this has been broadly hailed as a landmark piece of legislation, and it unquestionably was, right? It has ripple effects that are felt through to today because the Department of Justice uses that antitrust law to sue Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Blizzard, and you get to excise company, you're basically guaranteed that you're going to be accused of malfeasance and the government is going to step in and sue your ass. And sometimes, to be fair, the government is right. Sometimes the government is just overreaching. Like when the Supreme Court in 1993 ruled the purpose of the Sherman Act is not to protect businesses from, working from, from the working of the market, it is to protect the public from the failure of the market. Um, the public, meaning not necessarily just we the people, but the government. He wants to protect the government from the failure of the market. And government trying to protect the public from market failure is how we end up with a bloated, unsustainable corpse of government, wherein the government feels like it has to bail out everything from banks to airlines to protect the public interest, i.e. jobs. The only way to correct this is to let bad businesses fail, which the government will never do. So those midterm elections of 1890, the nation spoke in droves. And Harrison managed to convince himself that this was not a... Hmm, commentary on his leadership so much as, as just the party at large. He felt that the Republicans had failed individually and not a commentary on his leadership, which is, you know, how the delusional have always like signed it off on, right? The massive turnout of the Democrats ended up controlling 235 seats to the Republicans 88. And going into 1890, he had had a clear majority across everything. So with that loss, Harrison turned his sights from domestic improvement to foreign affairs, working on treaties to create a canal crossing in Latin America, attempting to create naval ports in the Caribbean, and trying to annex Hawaii, and I feel like Samoa was in there somewhere. 
However, the Latin American situation remained not awesome due to an incident in Chile between locals and U.S. Navy personnel, which resulted in several people dead. Uh, Harrison did manage to convince Chile that the Navy was ready to go to war if Chile didn't accept responsibility for this cluster and apologize, and Chile ultimately did. When trying to set up naval bases in the Caribbean, he wisely sent Frederick Douglass as a minister to Haiti to try and set up a base there. But when negotiations weren't going fast enough for Harrison's pleasure, he sent Rear Admiral Bancroft Girardi to assist Douglass. And Girardi was arrogant and intimidating, and negotiations stalled because Haiti didn't want to deal with him. Should have just let Frederick Douglass do it in his own way. Has that derailed negotiations? The Dominican Republic then reached out and offered to allow a base there. However, before negotiations could even be undertaken, American bankers stepped in and refinanced the Dominican Republic's debts. So the lease deal, they no longer needed the government, basically. This might have been a cue for the Antitrust Act. Not saying it was, I'm just saying, might have been. Before Hawaii could be annexed, Harrison lost the 1892 election to Cleveland, who took a look at the going on there and realized all the problems in Hawaii were the result of bad faith American actors who were forcing their policies on the Queen and Cleveland backed America out sending new diplomats. Now sadness did befall Harrison in his last year in the White House. Uh, Caroline, his wife of 39 years, contracted tuberculosis and died on October 25th, 1892. Harrison returned to Indianapolis to bury his wife but could not bring himself to return to vote, so he didn't vote in that election, and was kind of relieved that he lost because now he could mourn quietly at home and not have to try and do this very demanding, pressing job for another four years. Although he would have preferred anybody but Cleveland to be replacing him. He genuinely did not like Grover Cleveland. Um, he, he looked down on how Cleveland handled the Panic and Depression of 1893, kind of never once acknowledging how his own policies contributed to that panic, you know, what with the spending of the surplus budget, meaning there were no reserves left when we ran out of money, so Cleveland had to make that deal with the devil. And the silver policies, like everything, he, he didn't acknowledge any of that. And the Sherman Antitrust Act and Sherman Silver Act seemed to have set the stage for the Fed a decade and a half later. Now, after his wife died, Harrison remarried his wife's niece, Mary Mamie Dimmick. Uh, Dimmick had been a family friend for decades at this point, and Harrison had always kind of had a special relationship with her. Uh, th there was never any indication ever that anything inappropriate happened between the two of them. She was just a very dear family friend. But <clears throat> when his wife died, he started to felt, develop more feelings for her and fell in love with her and married her. And his own two children just came to loathe Dimmick, and so much so that they did not speak to Harrison again after he married her on April 6, 1896. They didn't speak to him again. Dimmick and Harrison had a child together, so that was his third child, second daughter in 1896, and Harrison himself died of, I believe it was the flu, on March 13, 1901. Uh, there is not much to say about Harrison. This is a very, very short, concise book. Um, there's an entire series of uh, the, the American President series. They're all like this, where they're just very short, concise, to-the-point books about the president. There were no longer ones that I could find on Benjamin Harrison. Uh, there might be, but it would be like a 900-page monstrosity, and I'm not looking for every time he sneezed, just something that gives me kind of an overall view, and this one did that in spades. Enough for me to say that overall, I'm not a fan. I mean, I, but I get it. I love the small contained government of the hundred years that preceded him, and he kind of burst that door wide open. 
he's the one who seemed to feel that government should be the nation's father and mother, which is a policy stance that I absolutely loathe with every fiber of my freedom-loving heart. I don't think he was the worst president ever. I mean, he, he had bad policies, but I do believe his intentions were probably good. Um, got to leave Jackson in the bottom spot, but Harrison is somewhere near the bottom. I, and just because he infantilized an entire nation and the nation took him up on it, which that, that's not his fault. It's not his fault that the nation took him up on it. But he put the idea out there and they followed that lead and that's just disgusting. And that is it for this week. So if you liked what you saw, don't forget to hit subscribe and I will see you guys next Sunday.